you, thank you. Hey, I want to tell you something, the 20s can sing. I was over there and wow, it felt like I was surrounded by a choir. Thank you for singing so beautifully and welcome to all of you. Uh, it's great to have you here coming up to what I know is going to be a crazy time of Christmas uh, celebrations and uh, travel and connection for a lot of us in this room. And uh, I hope and pray that uh, if you know anybody that does not have a community to walk through this season with, that you will let them know we would be so privileged at Christ Church to be that community for them. Even if they can just connect with us online, that works for us too. We would love to have them uh, come and be part of our celebrations. If you just walked in here today, uh, it's fair to tell you that you are uh, entering into part three of a series we've been doing called Magical. And Magical has been a, a, a series of reflections on the meaning of the Christmas story through the eyes or lens and experience of the Magi. Magi, magical. You get the connection. The Magi are the wise men of the story. They're the people that came from the East. Uh, they're mysterious figures, and we've been exploring who they were, uh, what the star was that they followed, and, and today we're going to dive into the encounter that they had with one of the most powerful figures of their time. And uh, I am really honored to have the chance to reflect with you on this particular part of the, of the story. Let me just ask, before I plunge in, if any of you have... Um, watched even a single episode of uh, House of the Dragon. Any of you know about that one? Uh, for those who are not in the know about it, uh, the House of the Dragon is the, is the award-winning prequel to the HBO blockbuster series Game of Thrones. And as, as your self-appointed source on all things cultural as they connect, pop culture connects to Christian theology. Let me tell you, this has been a big week in, in, the, in the GOT world because last week um, a new trailer just dropped for the second season of, of House of, of the Dragon. And I will just, spoiler alert, I will just tell you that from what I can tell from watching the trailer, it is still the case that people are just literally dying to take their place on the Iron Throne. My title for today's message, The Iron Throne. Now, for those of you who are not followers of this, and uh, that's okay, you do not have to be religious followers of this series at all, but let me just tell you that, that, that the Iron Throne is a very powerful symbol in the Game of Thrones House of Dragon world because it's, it's literally made, and you can see this up on the, on the slide, it's literally made of a thousand swords. And, and the, the, the swords have been taken from the dead bodies of, of a thousand warriors defeated by King Aegon the Conqueror, a very serious dude, right? And, and this, this, this throne made of swords is the symbol of authority and power in the kingdoms that are represented in this whole saga. So the person that sits on the Iron Throne runs things. They do not have people challenging them very often. They are people who make decisions and see their will being done. They are the center of the kingdom. Now, it's interesting to note that back in 2014, uh, Hollywood uh, uh, took on tour a, 
um, a life-size replica of the Iron Throne. And Queen Elizabeth II of England was given an opportunity to sit on the throne. She turned it down. I don't know if it's because those swords are kind of sharp. Uh, but I think it's because somebody that has actually sat in a position of real authority knows that there are thrones and then there are thrones. And, and, and that particular insight, the, the insight that there may be a throne that we're not supposed to sit on is one of the big ideas that I want to um, have you think about with me today. So when we open up in the story of the Magi, we open up to Matthew chapter 2. And if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you, you can pull it out on your phone if you like. Um, you, you might want to follow along in Matthew chapter 2. Because when we open the text there, we meet a king, a royal person, who is, in a word, disturbed. Disturbed. Um, actually, um, the, the New Revised Standard Version of the Scripture reads as follows. When King Herod heard the Magi's report about the birth of Jesus... He was frightened. Some translated as disturbed, frightened, shaken. He was afraid. Now, what could be so frightening about the news that a baby had been born? And I guess unless you had to pay for the college for that child, I don't know. But seriously, I mean, what could possibly be so intimidating to a powerful king that a baby had been born? And even more personally, why might the news of Christmas be somewhat disturbing to you and me? Maybe you never thought about it this way, but, but in what way, in what sense could it be viewed as somewhat disturbing to us? Uh, what, if anything, is scary about the babe of Bethlehem? That's sort of the big question I want to invite you to think about today. So to get at a partial answer to the question, let, let me just make an initial observation, jog your memory about this guy, Herod. And the first thing you need to know about King Herod is that he was not stupid and he was not weak. He was the opposite of stupid and weak, Herod was. Um, and so let me just give him some cred here. I know he, he comes out as the villain in the story, but let's give him some credit here. He was a complicated guy, life is complex, and we got to really think about the layers of things sometimes and how good lives alongside of bad in our lives. And, and Herod, in an era that was at least as politically tumultuous as our era is, uh, in fact, arguably a lot more politically tumultuous, Herod managed to hold on to the Iron Throne of Judea for like 40 years, which was like a crazy length of time in that era for somebody to hold on to power. Uh, you know, other than Queen Elizabeth herself, not many people even in our age hold on to power that long. So how did this guy do that? Well, the answer is he was a wicked smart manager. And as those of you who work in, in businesses and organizations, various places, you get this. Uh, to, to be really effective, some, you need to learn how to manage down and manage up. Down the structure, up the hierarchy. You need to do clever things. So managing down, Herod was brilliant in his, in his handling and his controlling of the, uh, 
of the people he was supposed to keep uh, uh, tamped down on behalf of Rome. And so he would initiate all of these uh, public works projects that people loved, uh, that improved the quality of life in the land. He, um, he instituted some strategic assassinations to get rid of uh, people that were oppos- uh, opponents uh, to his rule. Um, he was not uh, against using pretty tough military suppression at time to, to, to keep the, the notoriously restless, revolution-oriented Jewish people under control for Rome. He managed down very, very well. And he also managed up. Because you see, when he would do one of these big public works projects, he would name it after somebody in Rome. He would frequently find out, he would, he would name it after the guy that was on the throne of Rome or the person that was next coming into authority there. And that made him really popular uh, at the top of the Roman structure. In fact, he was so popular that the Roman Senate voted him a honorific title. They didn't do this very often, but they voted him a a formal title. You know what it was? King of the Jews. Herod was king of the Jews. So, what do you suppose he feels when a group of magi, a bunch of these scholars from the east, um, from the area we would know today as Iraq and uh, Iran, when these guys show up in Jerusalem and they ask, I quote, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the child who's been born king of the Jews? Now, if these guys are right, and there is a a kid out there, a baby, a child out there someplace, who is going to be king of the Jews, what does that mean for Herod? Not good. Not good things, right? He, he is going to lose his place on the throne. There, there's going to come a day, and who knows when it's going to uh, come, when Herod is no longer going to be calling all the shots, when the resources of his kingdom are no longer his to uh, spend as he wants, when he's no longer going to have the ability to say who lives and who dies, when he's going to have to give up the iron throne on which his butt has been planted for a long time. And so he does not like these, this news. And it's not surprising that Herod was disturbed, as the text says. Here's the other question. Are you disturbed? Can you see in any way how the birth of the child Jesus, the coming of Christ into human history, is at all upsetting for you? Now, When I am really ruthlessly honest and transparent, I will tell you that I'm reasonably comfortable with Jesus as the baby. I think it's sentimental and beautiful. I love that about the whole story. You know, it's the baby Jesus. And and I'm okay when, when Jesus grows up, when he becomes an advisor to my administration. I quite like having a smart guy like Jesus advising my administration of my life and the way I think things should go in the world. 
I, I think it's, it's a pretty good thing when he gives me suggestions. I will take suggestions from Jesus. Commandments? Oh, not so sure. Suggestions? I'm cool with that. I don't mind having a spiritual consultant. I'm willing to go to a building with a steeple on top and get consulting help once a week. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, and and. I like somebody I can call when I'm in a pinch, when I can invoke some power to help me when I'm not able to help myself any longer. Um, but, but that's not the relationship Jesus is out for. You feel me on this one? It's not what Christmas actually is telling us Jesus is here to do, to be the consultant, the occasional advisor, the... Um, the resource that I, I pull down, the cosmic ATM in a sense. It's not his, his role as the Bible describes it. Um, the birth of Jesus means that somebody has arrived in history who belongs on the throne where I'm comfortable in a lot of circumstances, uh, who, who, who deserves to have an authority in my life and over the way I live my life that, that is not always comfortable for me to grant. Christmas means that the rightful king has come and that he wants to govern from my big chair, that he wants to direct the use of my resources, he wants to shape the way I talk and, and talk to and treat other people, that he, that he, that he wants to regard every sphere and, and, and part of my life, even my thought life, as either a part of his kingdom or a, a, as a sphere that he just has yet to reclaim. The great Dutch uh, prime minister, statesman Abraham Kuyper once said, there is no part of life over, over which Jesus does not say, mine. I love it all, I, I want it all, I wanna help orchestrate the best out of it all. It's all mine. So I don't know if this registers with you two, but, but if we're wise, we will realize that Christmas brings a threat to our power and position, to our lordship of, of, of life. And Herod got that. Again, not a dumb guy. He understood that. Um, Herod also understood that the birth of the Christ child challenged his pursuit of prestige. It challenged his pursuit of prestige. And, and his meeting with the Magi uh, that day made that totally clear to him. It was not a magical moment for Herod when the Magi came in uh, because these visitors, uh, you got a picture of this scene, they come shuttling in to the throne room of Herod the Great. By the way, Herod the Great was the, was the title he liked even more than King of the Jews. He liked the title Herod the Great. Um, I remember back when I was in, um, I think, middle school, uh, my dad was uh, appointed to the New York State Board of Regents, which was a, a very, very powerful group of people, 15 people, um, who by the New York State Constitution uh, are granted the ability to oversee all of the educational system and all of the licensed professions in the whole state. 
they just have an enormous amount of power. And so when he got, when he got appointed to this role, we said to him, so dad, do we, do we need to, will you have a different kind of title? I mean, what, I know you're the honorable already because he had been in the state legislature. And, and, he, says, and, and he says, yes, I have, I have a new title. We said, well, what we call, should we call you Regent Meyer? And he says, no, you should call me Your Excellency. That, that literally was in the, in the Constitution. That was what you're supposed to call a regent, your excellency. Now, my dad did not insist that we do that, right? He, that was not the dinner table conversation because my dad understood, you know, there are thrones and there are thrones, and he did not, have, he did not deserve that kind of response. But you know what? Herod didn't feel that way. No, you call me Herod the Great, so, so these magi show up, and they walk into the throne room, and, and, and we get no indication that they're saying, oh, your greatness, oh, your, oh, your magnificence, oh, your majesty, oh, none of that stuff. All these people can do as they come into the throne room is talk about Jesus. Literally, we observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage which means really high honor or worship, even. They're standing in front of Herod the Great. They've come to pay the child homage because they have seen his star rising. What's the implication? Herod's star's doing what? It's falling. It's falling. So I think this is the second scary thing, the second frightening thing about Christmas. Um, Something has happened in history that must necessarily, if we actually get it, must necessarily move the focus of our lives off of seeking homage, honor, praise for ourselves, prestige, and onto paying homage and honor to someone else. Think about the amount of resources that go into getting prestige in our world. Think how much money, time, energy, thought goes into trying to accumulate a record, uh, post pictures, dress in a certain way, drive a certain kind of vehicle, live in a certain kind of house, in order that other people will want to praise and give credit to and be impressed by me. You know, I think of, I mean, honestly, I think about all the work that's gone into trying to earn honor and admiration from other people uh, over the years. I, I can be a little bit like a kid I, whose story I once told who, who asked his mom to play darts with him one day, and, and, and he said, hey, mom, uh, I, I'm going to stand over here, and I'm going to throw the darts, and I want you to stand over there and say, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Um, I can be like that. Maybe you can be like that. How many of us uh, spend, consciously or unconsciously, a lot of energy trying to hear affirmations and accolades towards us instead of spending those energies on trying to bring praise and honor and glory to the one whose name 
and nature is wonderful. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Think, think about that misplaced amount of energy. So if you and I are really in sync with the true message of Christmas, I think, I think this is what the text is telling us, then we're going to be a lot more concerned about seeing Jesus' star rise than with getting our star on the door. Uh, we, we are going to tend to be less focused on making an, an excellent impression on other people for the sake of our good name and reputation and far more concerned about living in such a way that we make uh, a, a great impression on people for the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory. Uh, and in fact, I would suggest that, that we're going to be increasingly, if we understand Christmas, increasingly even grateful for those moments when um, other people don't treat us the way we might, if we were really on the throne, want to be treated, because they, they, that's an invitation for us to sort of get clearer on the fact that our job is to glorify him, not to be glorified. I remember this um, conversation I had shortly after coming to the Midwest, moving from San Diego years ago, and I managed to get an appointment with a guy who, whose name won't mean anything to you now. His name was Lyle Schaller, but he was like the top church growth guru in America at that time. He happens to live in Naperville. He let me into his house. We sat in his, in his uh, living room one day, and I was asking for his advice. And he said, one of the things you ought to do, Dan, is you ought to start a bunch of different worship services, and you ought to, ought to have a bunch of other preachers besides you preaching. I said, why? Why, why Mr. Schaller? And he says, because not everybody's into you. That was just like hugely good advice. Because I've discovered over the years, that is true. Not everybody is into me. And they love, that's one of the commitments I've made to all of you. I make sure we've got lots of different voices up here because it's important that you're hearing from a range of wonderful, wonderful communicators. Um, and, and it was great for me to remember that occupying the throne at all times and all places, you know, it was not a, not a good thing. Um, are you so in sync with Christmas that, that, that when you're, you have an experience that calls you to die to something of yourself, something of your pride, something of your centrality, you go, oh, good. Oh, good. This is hard. Dying to self ain't easy, but this is good for me. This is good for me. It's kind of frightening to die to self. Um, and I think there's another thing about Christmas that is kind of scary too. So the coming of Jesus at Christmas time threatens our power and position, our place on the throne, number one. Number two, it challenges our, our unconscious pursuit of prestige. And thirdly, and I think this may be the hardest to take, um, what happened in Bethlehem shatters our perception about the presence of God or absence of God even. Let me say a little bit more about that. Back in the first century AD, when Jesus was born, um, the Jewish people, especially the well-educated ones, uh, were pretty confident that they knew God's MO. They knew how God worked. Uh, and this is how they would have described it if you were having a serious conversation. They would have basically said, he's mainly, he's mainly active in the past. You know, Back in Exodus, 
He's mainly active there. He's, that's, and in fact, they said often, you know, remember, remember. That's one of the watchwords for Israel. Remember it because he's mainly active back there in the past. Secondly, God is primarily interested in religious gatherings, observances, and rituals. That's his, that's his primary interest because he had set up all these different feasts and things that, that the Jews were trying to observe. And thirdly, he's really high and mighty, which is to say not really involved down here, not really involved with our lives. I think we still think this. I think that's a, a way a lot of people think about God. You know, mainly, mainly active back in the Bible times, you know, mainly interested in what goes on in religious buildings, and rituals, um, and so great and distant that he's not really too connected to what we do. And, and Christmas disturbs that notion. Christmas really shakes that idea up. Um, I love the way author Frederick Beekner puts this. He was a, Fred Beekner passed away now. He was a Presbyterian pastor and a writer of great books. And he says this. Those who believe in God can never, in a way, after Christmas, be sure of him again. And what he means by that is you can't be sure anymore that you know how he works. They can never be sure again. Once they've seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he'll appear next or to what lengths he will go, to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humanity. For if holiness and the power and the majesty of God the great God were present in the birth of a peasant child, then there is no place, no time so lowly or so earthbound, but that holiness could show up there too and be present there too. And, and then Beekner concludes, this means that there is no place we can hide from God no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart. I tell you, Christmas can tap into some, some serious fear. Our power and position are threatened our pursuit of prestige is challenged. Our, our perceptions about the presence of God are shattered. It is understandable why, why God scares people. I can understand why this kind of God would tempt people to try and box him. You know, kind of like we do with the Christmas ornaments that we throw back in the box and, and, and then the box gets shoved under a, a bed someplace maybe or into a closet. Uh, we regard Christmas sometimes as something to be taken out. We look a little bit. We love the sentimental baby, but we don't want to think about the full implications if that baby is who the Bible says he is and what he would do with our thrones. We, we don't think about that. We prefer to, to keep that reality in the closet. And in a sense, this is what Herod was trying to do when, as we'll discover if you show up the last Sunday of 2023, uh, when he orders this massive genocide, 
He's trying to contain Christmas. He's trying to box the baby because he rightly understands Jesus is dangerous for those who demand the Iron Throne. You know, the Bible teaches us that fear is is often a good thing. The Bible actually says at one point, the writer of Proverbs writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Yeah, of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That phrase, fear of the Lord, requires explanation. It has two senses to it. One is a sense of appropriate terror before a God that is really seriously great and holy. A God who who deserves a place on the thrones of our lives, who is so worthy of our utter homage or tribute, who so mysteriously does show up where we might not want him to show up and see what we're doing and how we're managing things. That's part of what the fear of the Lord is. But there's another connotation to that phrase, the fear of the Lord, as biblical people understood it. It is a sense of wondrous awe at having a God like that. So let me just close today, if I can, by trying to share with you the wondrously awesome good news of Christmas. I, I, I want to say that, first of all, Jesus, if Jesus really is the king, then the good news is we do not have to carry the weight of the throne any longer. How many of you have ever been to the place in, described in that picture? That is right in front of Rockefeller Center um, in New York City, the place where they make Saturday Night Live, where they shoot a lot of the TV shows that, that people watch in our time. And, and, the, and that particular statue is the image of, of a mythological figure named Atlas, and he's holding up the world. And I've been to that place, I've stood at the base of that statue, and if you ever have, you can see the tension in the body of Atlas. You can see every sinew in his body is straining. You can see his, his back muscles hunching down. You can, you can almost feel the incredible pressure that he's managing as he holds up this world. And, it, and, 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 and instinctively what you feel when you're close to it is, oh, I know that. I feel like a lot of my life's like that. I'm carrying so much. And right across the street from that statue is this other building. That's St. Patrick's Cathedral. And I think as I'm standing there watching this thing, all he needs to do is is just kind of roll the weight off of his shoulders and just walk across the street. Just open the door and go into the holy hush of that beautiful place. And if you wandered around, and you might try this someday, you wander around, you come across another statue in that building. And this one, and I couldn't get the copyright. I tried really hard. I couldn't get the copyright to show you this picture. But this other one is is of a child. 
And the child is, is standing there very comfortably. And there's a look of serenity on the face of the child. And, and in the child's outstretched hand, as if it's the lightest, easiest, most comfortable thing of all, is the globe of the world. And the child is Jesus. And he's got the whole world in his hand. Friends, give him the throne. Give him the throne of your life. Don't try and carry it all, all the weight of life. Heavy, heavy is the head that bears the crown, right? How hard it is to sleep when you're just worrying over all the weight of your workplace, your family, your finances, your health, all the stuff that kind of crushes us. Give him the throne. Let him be the one who ultimately and finally carries that particular weight. Because for him, it's not such a weight. And he can make of our lives, when we give him that central place, more than they are. Secondly, since Jesus is really the one person who is worthy of homage, honor, then the good news is, you and I can relinquish the exhausting struggle to prove our value by winning the praise of other people. We can let go of it. Wise men and women always know that the homage belongs to him anyway. And yet the awesome truth is that Jesus' very coming into this world is God's way of saying, like the parent to the little boy in the story, you're wonderful. The only person whose opinion counts in the end. When all the other opinions of this world have gone quiet, the only person whose opinion counts in the end will be him. It'll be Jesus. And he came from eternity to that manger. And he walked through the dusty roads of this life and took on everything that human beings experience and he laid down his very life on a cross to pay the price for our forgiveness because he thinks we're wonderful. He loves us that much. He loves you that much. So next time somebody criticizes you and your, your, your pride's kind of, remember him. Remember what he's already said about you. The next time things get reversed in your life and you find yourself dropping, your star falling a little bit, just remember what he thinks of you and what he has done for you. Forget about whether your star is rising or falling. Put your effort into pointing other people towards his glory so that they can find that, that irrevocable esteem that comes from being one of his like you have. And finally, think with me about this, and then I'll let you go. The birth of Jesus shows us that God is unpredictably more present than we may think. The good news is that we don't ever need to worry that we will ever be in a place anywhere where he can't get to us, where he can't meet us, 
with the grace that's greater than the gravity of life. There's no place that he can't find us there. He can be, he can be with you in the midst of your financial crisis and give you what you need to, to rise. He, he, can, he can meet you in a moment of arrogant success and reorder your vision about the purpose and the meaning of your life. He can enter into and change that relationship that seems to be dying. He can come alongside of you in the midst of your illness or when your body is just breaking down. He can redeem and give purpose to these next years of your life. He can renew your strength if you're feeling really weary. He can give you the courage to persevere till the winter you're walking through becomes his new spring. Because he's the king. He can do that. And he wants to do that for you and me. Only one thing is necessary for that to happen. We've got to, we've got to do what Walter did. Walter was nine years old. He was one of those really awkward kids. He was one of those kids, and we've met them all, and some of us have been one of these kids, who was so awkward that other kids sort of kept their distance from him, or they made fun of him. They ribbed him. They made him the butt of their jokes. But, but, but Walter had a, a kind teacher, and, and the kind teacher gave Walter a part in the Christmas pageant that year. Now, his mom was anxious about this because... She wasn't really sure how this was going to go when Walter was under pressure and in public. And, and, and that could lead the other kids to make even worse fun of him. And so she was very nervous when she went to the school and she sat down in her chair and she waited for the pageant to unfold. And the moment came when, when Mary and Joseph, or the kids playing Mary and Joseph, arrived at the door of the inn and they knocked on the door. And then there was this agonizing pause until finally, mercifully, the door opened and the innkeeper, Walter the innkeeper, is standing there. And mom is holding her breath. Will he remember the line? And she didn't need to worry because Walter's voice rings out loud and clear. There's no room at the inn, he says. And Mary and Joseph hang their heads. Mary's really pregnant and Joseph is really dejected. And they turn and they walk away. And, and then something happens that was nowhere in the script. Except maybe in God's. And this, this look of... Of, of concerns comes over Walter's face. I mean, he is looking disturbed. He is looking frightened. And, I, and, and it's not clear in that moment whether it's, it's a feeling of, of terror over what he has just done or what he's about to do. It's not clear. But all of a sudden, his voice rings out, Come back! You can have my room! And I believe the angel sang, and grace broke in, and Christmas came into that school auditorium, 
like maybe it had never come before. As it can happen this Christmas for you and for me, if we'll just say, come in, Lord. You can have my room. You can have my throne. In spite of my fears, maybe because of them, there's room in my heart, Lord. I choose to put my faith in you. Let those magical words come from you toward Jesus today. Would you pray with me? God, we ask you to help us to live wisely, to live more wisely and creatively than than Herod could. Stop us from trying to box up or banish the fearsome implications of your arrival in our kingdom. Instead, turn our fear into a joy-filled awe at what it can mean for us when we give you the throne, when we focus our lives on rendering homage to you, when we look for your presence even in the dark places of our life. You who are the light of this world, God, shine upon us, we pray, as we put our faith afresh in you, in the name of Jesus, and all God's children said, amen. Amen.